As soon as he crossed over the bridge is when he said his famous words. He said, this is your captain, brace for impact. And I didn't pay attention to instructions. I didn't know what that meant, but man, I know it's serious. You ever hear that one on a plane, something's going on. And that's, uh, that's when all of a sudden, my first thought was all the training that I had in my life and everything that I learned in my life started coming together. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, Dave Sanderson. We all remember the news. When U.S. Airways Flight 1549 on January 15, 2009 hit a flock of geese flying out of LaGuardia Airport, knocking out both engines, forcing the plane to make an emergency landing in the Hudson River, and through the great piloting and response of the crew, no lives were lost. Our guest was on that flight and was the last passenger off the plane. Dave talks about how that moment has changed the rest of his life. And I could go on, but this is one story I'm confident you'll be engaged in the whole way through. Here's how my co-host John Ramstead and I got that conversation started. Steve, today on uh, the Eternal Leadership Podcast, I'm excited to bring on Dave Sanderson. Now, Steve, I'm sure you've heard of the miracle on the Hudson. Oh, of course. Yeah, I, I had a, I had a friend who was a U.S. Air pilot and knew Captain Sullenberger personally, and so I followed that entire thing. Well, Dave, first of all, just thanks for coming on. Welcome to the uh, the podcast, my friend. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you very much. And we got introduced to a close friend of ours, Jeff Spatafora, who you've gotten to know, and he heard about your really kind of your whole halftime journey, everything that you went through as being part of that plane. When it landed on the Hudson, it was a, you weren't even supposed to be on that plane. And uh, your story and what's happened as you went through this is just uh, just something I've been really excited to have you on and just share with our audience. So what I'd love to do, Dave, is actually just take this and just turn it over to you and just walk us through uh, everything that's happened, you know, your life, how you got to that point, and just what you learned through everything uh, in that moment and what you're doing today. Well, well, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's been a life changing experience, and I think, as I told Jeff, I do think it was sort of my halftime awakening, um, because just a little background: I was for the previous twenty five years, I was in sales and sales management, and uh, when this occurred on January fifteenth, two thousand nine, I was a sales manager for a company by the name of Oracle, and I was doing well. Um, you know, I wasn't outstanding, I wasn't bad, but uh, two thousand nine, if you remember, wasn't a real real happening time in this country. It was a lot of tough things going on, and business was extremely challenging at that year. Yeah, that was a so, tough year for tech and real yeah. estate and a lot of other areas. It was, uh, it was people didn't really want to spend a lot of their money because they had a lot of uncertainty on what was going to happen in the economy. So, But I, you know, I've been doing that for so long, and uh, you know, I traveled so much. I traveled over 100 times a year flying all over the country doing my job. So it was just a nor another normal business trip for me. I was actually on the end of a three-day business trip. I started in uh, in Clearwater, Florida, and then went to Petersburg, Virginia, and ended up in New York City at a distribution plant. And we were actually doing distribution system checks that day. Um, and I don't know if anybody who's listening today or you or anybody has ever been in a distribution center, but they open up extremely early in the morning to get ready for that day's activities. And the one I went to that day in Brooklyn opened up at 2 o'clock in the morning. So if you're going to get on in the front of the system, do system checks and get in the front of the business, you got to be there when they open up. 
So we really opened up and started our day really about 4.30, 5 o'clock. We got there a little early so we could sort of see how everything was setting up for the day. So our day got done about 10 because most of the shipments were done by 10. Um, you know, when things are moving in and out and a company that uh, is in consumer products, they go out early and they you know, basically get inventory during the day. So we got done about 10 o'clock that day, and I travel so much, end of a, end of a business trip, that I, uh, I always try to get home to my wife and four kids a little early. So at 10 o'clock that morning, I called the travel agent, and that's when she put me on flight 1549. So looking back in retrospect, I, I truly believe that God wanted me on that plane for a reason. Uh, there's no reason I should have been on that flight. I was on the 5 o'clock flight in first class. So I gave up a first class seat to go back to seat 15A that day. So there's a reason behind that. Dave, and what do you as, think that reason is? As I've thought through this over the last several years and talked to a lot of people, I think the reason was is God needed to have leaders on that plane who not only were believed in his mission, but also I think really had to help other people, be there to help and support other people and have, be a proof statement for people that uh, you know, good things do happen when people do the right thing. So I think that was the reason I was on that plane that day. Because candidly, I shouldn't have even been on the plane. Um, but you know, it was, it was just a normal day. It was 11 degrees and snowing, and you know, New York in the winter—that's not that big of a deal. And as my status with U.S. Airways, I was a top-tier kind of person. So I, I boarded the plane as the first set of passengers to board the plane. And so when I do that, I just go back, do what everybody does, put the briefcase down, I put wallet, briefcase, pull the magazine out, and I started to read. I didn't even think about it. So. One of the parts of the story that I share when I speak is I didn't listen to the flight crew. Who listens to the flight crew, right? You, you think you know everything because you fly so often and nothing's ever going to happen. But that day, you know, I didn't listen to the flight crew. And so, uh, you know, about 60 seconds after, after we took off from LaGuardia is when I heard an explosion. And that's what caught my attention because, you know, you never hear an explosion on a plane unless something's going on. What's the first thought that went through your head? Uh, first thought that went through my head is terrorism. That would be exactly. Mm. I thought we were in New York. I thought, uh oh, terrorism. But then I looked out the window and I saw fire coming out from underneath the left wing. So I knew it wasn't really that. I thought the plane just blew an engine. Um, and I fly so often, you know, that happens. I've had, I've had that situation happen in Charleston, South Carolina, where we took off and the plane blew an engine. He just came back and got another plane and went on. No big deal. But that's where I think the grace of God started entering on that plane. At that moment, because no one on that plane, I mean, no one, whether it was the captain, Captain Skiles, Captain Sullenberger, the passenger's crew, knew what happened on the left side of the plane, where I was sitting, have also happened on the right side of the plane, which was a double impact at the exact same time. And that was one of the most unique things that happened. I, it doesn't get talked about is, is I think if that would have been bang, bang, instead of bang, people would have started questioning what happened and started talking and things. But when they heard one bang, I think the people on the right side of the plane thought the same thing I thought on the left side. This happened on the other side, no big deal, we're going home, going back to LaGuardia. So I think that, that was a distinguishing factor that doesn't get talked about because no one at that point said anything on the plane. So, so they, weren't, they weren't panicking, they weren't, they weren't scared, they weren't up in arms? It was so quiet, I t it was like you could hear a pin drop on that plane because I think people on that plane were like, okay, it happened on the other side, no big deal, we'll get back to the airport and get on the plane. So I think that's where the grace of God started entering at that moment. But the guy next to me, where who was sitting, I didn't know who he was. Who knows anybody on the plane unless you're traveling with him? So I elbowed me and said, hey, man, what's going on? And I said, I think he's going back to the airport. I think he's going back to LaGuardia. Because I found him banking. I just thought he was going back to the airport. 
But uh, I, uh, how fortunate all of us have a captain who not only had over 40 years of experience and over 20,000 hours of flight time, but also was a fighter jet pilot during Vietnam, um, had that experience. But more importantly, and I, I share with people, I think it's as important, if not more important, we also had a first officer, Jeff Skiles, who also had over 20,000 hours of flight experience. And I think between 40,000 hours of people flying, you know, they didn't lose their heads. I think that was one of the distinguishing factors. But most, more importantly, Captain Sullenberger also, was, also had, was an expert glider. He learned how to glide a plane at the Air Force Academy. So not only did you have the experience, but you had somebody with a unique skill set that needed to be employed at that moment in time. Because if you were on that plane, you would have noticed we were going straight for the George Washington Bridge. I mean, it was, it was going straight for it. And you know, the bridge is roughly 600 to 900 feet up, somewhere in that range. And he cleared it. He thinks he cleared it between 300 and 500 feet. So at that point, he was somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 feet, just coming down from 3,300. So as he was coming down, if he wasn't able to glide that plane over the bridge, we would have taken the George Washington Bridge out. That's what it would have happened. But fortunately for us, he had gliding experience. But as soon as he crossed over the bridge is when he said his famous words. He said, this is your captain brace for impact. And I didn't pay attention to instructions. I didn't know what that meant. But, man, I know it's serious. If you ever hear that one on a plane, something's going on. And that's, uh, that's when all of a sudden, my first thought was, all the training that I had in my life and everything that I learned in my life started coming together. Because for the 10 years prior to that day, I was the head of security for a gentleman named Anthony Robbins, Tony Robbins. Mm-hmm. And I had a chance not only to travel with him around the world, but learn and absorb everything that he taught, in addition to everybody he hung with. So... Everything that I learned from my, what my personal experience was, plus everything I learned from being around Tony and how people at that level you know, act and, and process information, I think it, was, it put me in that play, place for a reason because I had that experience. Because it took him about, about 60 seconds after he crossed over the George Washington Bridge, he glided. He had to put the nose back down to get speed back up. And that's when he, about 60 seconds later, he crashed into the river. So during that 60 seconds, what was going through your mind? Well... The first thing I did is I prayed, and I prayed three things. First thing I prayed for is the last person I spoke with up in Brooklyn to call my wife to tell her that I loved her. And the second thing I prayed for is bring my body back in one piece. I didn't want to have multiple things going on. I at least want to have one, one unit coming back. And the third thing is I prayed to Jesus to forgive my sins. Because, um, you know, like I tell people in a joking way, you know, we were going down, and I wanted to go up, and it's not looking good. And that's the moment you realize you better, have, you better be clean, cleaned up. That last moment when you think you're going to die and you, have, you've not, you don't think you're prepared, you better have that connection with God and Jesus to make sure that you know, whatever's going to happen, at least you're square with them. And then you know, after that, it was about, about a minute after I, all that was going on before he crashed. And that, I tell people it's, a, it's an amazing experience because everybody was quiet on that plane. The only thing you heard on that plane the entire time in that last minute was someone saying the Lord's Prayer. And that was coming from some lady in the back. I don't know who was saying it. Because I think everybody at that point was internalized, thinking, okay, this is it. You know, you better, you better have been squared away. And the last thought that I had before we crashed is I hope my wife pays off the house. Hmm. Because the one thing I told her since day one of our marriage 28 years ago was, if anything ever happens, pay off the house. You know, I've got all this money laying around. We haven't paid it off yet. And I told her dad that years ago that if I die, make sure she pays off the house. And that's the last month I thought before we crashed into the river. So as you 
you know, afterwards, did you talk to some of the other folks that were sitting in the plane around you, what they were thinking is in this minute of clarity? Well, later on, I had a chance to talk to people. That, that moment, when I use the term, is control chaos. But um, later on, I did talk to some people. And, you know, I had one lady that I talked to, you know, when she was texting her husband as we were going down. Uh, I talked to another lady who we did an event uh, the year after, uh, three of us, uh, Barry Leonard, myself, and another lady did an event at LaGuardia thanking U.S. Airways. And I talked to her then, and she said she was praying. She said, you know, she didn't want to die, but, you know, she was ready to die if she needed to die. So I think that uh, people were very internal at that point. Um, but a real distinguishing factor, which doesn't get talked about a lot, and I share this when I speak especially to business organizations, is the power of teamwork. Because if you look at the passenger makeup of that plane, roughly 90% of that plane was made up of business people. Coming from New York, right? Financial services people, you know, Bank of America, Wachovia, BB&T, LendingTree, and, and then 10% were basically a family with a couple older people. So the variables on that plane were, were minute, but the people who are business people usually are used to take care of themselves, right? They're, I mean, they pack themselves, they go themselves, they're not used to having to interact. But I tell people, it's amazing. You had 155 people on a plane that didn't know each other, who didn't care about each other, all of a sudden pulled together to do something that had never been done before. And that's one of the really key things that comes that came out of this is, is the power of when, someone, when you have a mission in life, whatever the mission is, all of a sudden you have commonality of that mission and you can achieve anything. So um, I think a lot of people were internalized, though, at that point. I think a lot of people realized they probably were not coming back. So describe the moment of impact. What do you remember? What happened? What was the reaction within the cabin? It, it was a hard impact. And he estimates, because he doesn't know if I don't think for sure, but I've heard him say, uh, he estimated the impact was about 100, 120 miles an hour. So, but he hit it perfectly. I mean, he could have torn it off. I, I tell people, and after I talk to him and other pilots, and, you know, he tips that thing looks like one degree either way. Just think of a plane toppling through Manhattan in rush hour or toppling through Hoboken, New Jersey in rush hour. Or if he puts the nose down just a degree, he's going straight to the bottom of the river. Straight. So, he hit it perfectly, but I went back in my seat and up in my seat. I mean, that's how hard a hit was. It was like boom, boom. And then as soon as you, you, know, you sort of came back up, you sort of started looked up and you looked out and saw light coming through a window, which was a great metaphor for me. You saw the light. So you knew at that point you had a shot. You, know, you were alive. At least you survived that. But the second part of it is that moment is all of a sudden water is coming in the plane because now the bottom of the plane is stripped off because of the landing. And someone listened to the flight crew, went to the closest exit behind them and opened up that door. So all of a sudden, immediately, you had water coming in from the bottom and from the back. So depending where you were on the plane, I was towards the back of the plane, water was anywhere from ankle to waist deep, just like that. So mm. now you're dealing with the issues of water in a cold river, 36-degree yeah. water, right? And people in control chaos trying to get out of a plane. But the other part of this that people don't realize and I talk about is it's amazing when things happen because, like I mentioned, when we hit, I went back in my seat. The, all the top of the seats broke. Most of them did. I don't know all of them, but most of them broke. So now the guy's seats in front of me is on my lap. And the guy's behind my seat's on somebody else's lap. So all of a sudden, you have multiple pathways to get out of a plane. Instead of one aisle, you have people walking down the seats to get mm. out of the plane. So you see the picture of people standing on the wings within a couple of minutes. That's how people got out so quickly is – 
You know, all of a sudden, people, I tell them, there's a great story about resourcefulness on this plane. Just think, I mean, when you think there's only one pathway, one strategy, right, to get out. And that's my thought. I'll up out. All of a sudden, another one opens up and another one opens up. And all of a sudden, God gives you multiple pathways when time of crisis. And you got to make the right choice. He still gives you with that opportunity to make the choice. But all of a sudden, he opens up pathways, which is another great metaphor when I speak to churches about how God opens up pathways in times of crisis. You just have to be, be able to use your senses to recognize it, whether it's a visual, auditory, or kinesthetic sense. you got to feel it or see it or hear it, right? But he opens it up. But I didn't do that. Man, I didn't think about getting on top of the seat. My thought was, get to that aisle, get up and get out. I mean, it's exactly what I thought. So when it was my turn to get to the aisle, something happened at that moment. It changed only that day, but now put me on a different, my different second part of my halftime in my life is my mom started talking to me in my head. And my mom had, had passed away in 1997. Hmm. Uh, and I always looked at her as my guardian angel. But there's something she told me when I was a youth and I found out. She also told my brother and sister, so it wasn't unique to me. But if you, she said, if you do the right thing, God will take care of you. So it was a choice I had to make. What was the right thing for me at that moment? Was it me getting out of the plane or taking care of other people? And the way I grew up, guys, is I grew up around, you know, I played sports and Boy Scouts. And I was always around the guys and the crew, right? You took care of the guys. So that's why I waited in the back of the plane until we got everybody out of the plane. That's how I made my choices. Okay, I'm alive. I think I can handle myself. Is there anybody in the back that needs help? And there are a couple of people who were struggling a little bit. You know, a couple older people. So we, and I, you know, we got them out of the plane. But once I started, once we got everybody out, then I started making my way out. But now you got to remember, and you know, if you're on a sinking plane in a river, the plane went, the back end went to the bottom towards the bottom in 24 minutes. So it was about 24 minutes from impact to basically nose up in, in the river. So as you're making your way out of the plane, you're waist deep plus in the water. It's 36 degrees. The bins have broken in addition to the seats, top of the seats. So now you've had luggage just flown out. You're trying to walk on a, on a plane that's already submerged in the back and so it's dark. You can't see anything. And they tell you, and I, I joke with U.S. Airways, I told, you know, they, they tell you those lights, watch for those lights, they come on. Yeah. They don't come on underwater. <laughs> they don't, they, you can't see them underwater, right? So you're looking for the lights, there's no light. So you're walking up, up an aisle like this, dark. And so every time you took a step, you ran into something. And so you had to make a quick assessment. Every moment, every step is like, did I hit somebody? Did I hit it? What did I hit? What did I hit? And fortunately, I didn't hit anything but luggage on my way out. But all the further I could get up was 10F because that's the point where it's like, okay, I got to get out of here. It's time to get out of here. But I got there and I looked out, looked out to my time to get out. And I looked up and it was, it was an amazing sight. There were people already being rescued. And were you one of the last people out, Dave? I was the last passenger out of the plane. Okay. And it wasn't by design. It was... Because once I, I tried to get out, there was no room on the wing for me. And there was no room on that lifeboat. It was already filled up because people were already being rescued. But then all of a sudden, you're looking out, and you hear people yelling, hold on, hold on. And I didn't know what they meant initially, but what I found out is that little lifeboat was like floating out into the river. And no one else, including me, like me, didn't read the instructions. So they didn't know it was actually tethered to the plane. So it would never have gone out further than the tether. But they kept screaming, hold on, because they thought they were floating out. So I held on to the little lifeboat as close as I could to that wing for seven minutes in 36-degree water. That's why I didn't get off the plane initially, because A, there's no room, and B, I was holding on to a lifeboat. And 
fortunately for me, I got to see it from a different angle that Good Morning America had a picture of me holding on to the lifeboat waist deep in the water. It was an amazing picture that I show when I speak that um, you can actually see what was going on on the right side of the plane. Uh, it, was, it was amazing to see. So that's how, how I, I stayed on the plane for six, seven minutes waist deep in the water. Now, there's a lot of people that would have been the first people out of the door thinking about themselves, but that's not the first thing that went through your mind. What do you think was different about how you reacted in that situation uh, to a lot than a lot of other people that you know we could learn some lessons from? It's interesting. I spoke a couple years ago in Florence, South Carolina, with a gentleman who was in 6B, and he was one of the first people out. And he said he just got out of the plane and went to the, you know, went to the lifeboat on the left side, upper left, left side. And I was listening to a story, and his thought process was he was doing what he was told to do, get out of the plane. So I think some people, um, you know, I, one thing I've learned out of this situation, I'll say it this way. The one thing I've learned out of this whole situation is you don't judge people in times of crisis. You don't know what their backstory is. You don't know where they're coming from. You don't know what their mindset is. So I don't judge anybody for what they did or didn't do. All I know is, is it was, when it was my time, I was given a choice. And the choice was given to me by my mother talking to me. And I think she probably would trust that I was going to make the right decision, at least in her eyes. But I had to do the right decision for me. And when I saw people in the back still trying to get out, I had to make the call. And my call was, okay, I can handle myself. You know, I can handle myself. I'm, I'm alive. I made it. I'm not broken up. And let's find out if anybody else needs help, where other people may have needed help. Uh, so I think that's the difference. I think that just you had to make a judgment. And Captain Stellenberger came back on the plane. He was walking up and down the plane to check behind me and behind everybody else, make sure there's no one else on the plane. So he made a decision to come back on the plane. And I'll contrast that with an interview I did last year. I don't know if you remember the Korean ferry crisis um, when the ferry went down. Yeah. And I got a phone call from Korean National Broadcasting. They wanted to interview me. I'm like, why do you want to interview me about a ferry? Uh, but they came to Charlotte. They flew to Charlotte to interview me. And the real question struck, and this is, it goes back to what I just said a moment ago, was if you look back at that situation with all the students on board, the captain and crew exited first. They left in shame. I mean, they left first and left all those people on, the, on there to fight for themselves. And they want to talk to me as why in our situation that we have people and the captain stay behind, right, and help. Where in contrast that to what happened to the ferries where the captain and crew left. And the same thing happened on the Concordia. Same thing happened. That's why he was contrasting it with the Concordia. It's like why it happened there but it didn't happen in your situation. Well, number one, I think you had people with character on our plane, number mm -hmm. one. But number two, I think God's presence. See, this whole thing, I think, guys – was God's message to the world say, okay, I'm still here. I'm, if I have to show you, if I have to visually now show you that I am still present in the world, okay, I'm going to make it so visual because why did it happen in New York City at rush hour? I mean, it, the number one place in the world for, for media during a time of people, massive people moving, right? All of a sudden, he puts this out there. So I think if you look, when I spoke, I sp I've spoken over 100 churches around the country, I still... God's message was, I'm still here. Because if you look at the first picture that I actually got released, and I don't know if you saw that picture of God's hands holding the plane. I don't know if you've seen that picture. I got the original picture when I, after I spoke at a church in Oakboro, North Carolina. They gave me that as a gift. And candidly, guys, I don't take gifts from churches. 
I go to churches because I want to give my word, give my story, you know. It's giving, not getting from a church. But they, someone from Bank of America had the picture, the original picture of God's hands holding the plane up in the water and said, would you take this? And I said, I will. And that was one of the few things I've ever accepted from the church. But it was so powerful a message uh, that uh, God's still here. God had to show people visually because people weren't getting it. 2009 wasn't, real go, real, wasn't going real well. But he had to do something visually dramatic for people to see. And this is what it, I think this is what that whole story was about. And you were also talking about just uh, the the nature of the people on the plane and just the teamwork that you witnessed and the leadership that was exampled, you know, during that period of time. Could you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think, once again, I mentioned about 90% of the passengers were business people and leaders of their companies. I mean, they're tra- traveling to New York because they're in a kind of, some type of a leadership role. So I think, um, you know, if you look at the teamwork and the people on that plane, you know, I, I have you know, what happened to me, and I'll share this with you and contrast it with some of the things I've just shared a moment ago. When I was looking out after I was, as I was holding on the lifeboat, there was a lady holding a baby on the middle of the wing, and she was by herself. And I found out later she actually had a three-year-old on the lifeboat, but she was holding on to a three-month-old baby by herself. And it was one of the few people who were not there for business. She, you could tell she did not travel. You just, she just, she just. She was going to Charlotte to see her family, excuse me. So I, you know, I ha- everything I've learned in my life in, leader- in leadership is when you have a te- group, of, group or a team together, and all of a sudden you have people at a deadlock. They can't, they, they're, they're in a trance. They can't do anything. you got to do something radical to break them out of that so you can get them back on path to get the outcome. So I yelled at her. I yelled, throw the baby. And I knew she wasn't going to throw her baby, but I broke the trance but it's amazing where God puts people in times of a crisis. And that's, that's, it's, it's an amazing story because all of a sudden this lady from Knoxville, Tennessee, heard me yell at this lady and looked up at the lady and told her to give her the baby. And she gave her the baby and got on the lifeboat. And all of a sudden people are now walking and running down the wing to get off just because you know, God gave her that faith to give her baby up. And I tell people, I say, you know, I didn't think I didn't do anything extraordinary by yelling at her. You know, I don't think the lady from Knox would do anything extraordinary by getting the baby. I think the lady who gave up her baby in time of a crisis, when all stuff's breaking loose around you, you're by yourself and you give it up. That's a true testimony of faith because you have to have faith that someone's going to say, oh, excuse me, take care of your baby, right? And you're going da- potentially going down. That's a strong testimony of faith. So there's, there's lessons of faith all through this. I think it's just it's an amazing story of teamwork, leadership, faith. There's 12 different things that I talk about, and these are three of the key, key uh, tenets I, I speak about. Well, you know, you talked about, when, you know, when you sent us the, some of the information before the interview, uh, I love what you wrote about your favorite verse in Romans 5, 4, that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, char- character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. So, you know, with that story in mind, what, what does endurance mean to you? I think, you know, God gives you – I don't think God puts anybody in a situation where he doesn't think they can control it. He gives you the choice on how to control it. So I think is that statement from Romans and from the Apostle Paul talks about is, you know, everybody in life will go through suffering. I went through suffering through a plane crash, but other people do it through heart attacks, strokes, cancer, car crash, whatever. They're, everybody's got what I call personal plane crash, that suffering moment. And God gives you the opportunity to endure through it whether it's personally or with other people's help around you, which happened that day. Everybody worked together that day. And once you endure through it, 
all of a sudden, people, you notice people's character shows up. And that's why you see people like Captain Sullenberger get the acclaim he, he should get. Because his character, people's character, all of a sudden came out. And in that time of crisis, and all of a sudden, people did the right thing and, and were humble and put the other people for them, which is what Jesus wants people to do. You take care of other people who are suffering. And that day, that happened a lot of different ways on that plane whether it was the first responders helping us, us helping each other, captain getting us. I mean, there's so many examples of that. So that, that one verse in the Bible I talk about is, I think, was the epitome of what happened that day. And, and I think the whole message out of this, that day was it gave people hope. Because if I talk to people all over, I just got back yesterday from Mexico speaking for the first time. Never spoken in Mexico in front of 18 different countries, 700 people, 18 different countries, which was an amazing experience because it's like when Jesus gave the final commandment go out amongst the world, right, Judea, Samaria, and the Holy Spirit will fill you. And that's sort of what happened to me. And I got to go yesterday from 18 different countries to share the message of hope. And that's what people keep telling me. It's like, I saw hope out of this. I watched this like it was like, it can't happen. Who survives a plane crash in water? Who? Very few people have ever done it. So there's a message for all that around hope. And that's why I think that, that verse is so special to me. You know, going through this and having that 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 flame of hope now in your life and what that's done uh i'd love to maybe hear you contrast the dave sanderson before the accident and the dave sanderson after the accident i uh, i appreciate that because um and someone asked me that interview the other day i i did an interview in dallas and and asked me that question and here's here's my perspective um my dad was basically born and raised in the depression era and when I was growing up, my dad was always working hard. He did everything he could for the family. So the model that I had of being a father is you take care of your family. You do whatever you have to to take care of your family. And because he came from that era where, you know, they didn't have much. They lived in central Illinois and didn't have much. So and he wasn't around a lot because he was doing what he had to do. So that's what I, my pattern was. I was working hard to make sure we had finances. People were taken care of. They had everything that they needed. I was getting the training that I need so I could, I could be a – be a you know achiever and, and help people, but I say that moment, that day, what changed is all of a sudden I realized is it's not about that. Life is not about that. It's about giving back and contribution. And I, I realized shortly thereafter is the reason maybe I was having some difficulties communicating with some of my kids and, and my wife is because I wasn't there for them on a lot of things because I was out doing what I thought needed to be done, being a dad, where they just wanted my time. They just wanted me to be present. And so the biggest change has changed for me. And one of the reasons I left Oracle last year was is I want to be able to control my time. So now I can schedule around my family, whatever I do, like I'm doing today, schedule around my family so I'm there for them uh, in times where they need to either have me there or want me there. And that's the biggest change. My priorities have changed dramatically. If I was still with Oracle right now, I'd, I'd be working 60 hours a week plus doing this. And that wouldn't be fair to my family. What would you say your priorities are today, Dave? Number one is definitely I schedule time, like I mentioned, around my family. Second is how can I give back? In, in my, my big vision statement is how can I add even more value and enjoy the process? Uh, there's two different parts to that. I want to add value to people. So I do a lot of contribution when I speak to the American Red Cross and other organizations, but I help them raise money um, because they're in places, if you look at that statement from Romans, they run into places where people are suffering. They're, the Red Cross doesn't show up because people are happy. It's because it'll go tornado, hurricane, house fire. 
whatever military situation. So I want to help them raise money to be able to do the things that they need to do. And that's how I sort of got my, how I got out there is because I helped them raise over seven and a half million dollars over the last several years and all the things that I do. And I, I go out and help them raise money. So it's really about gratitude and contribution and how can I add even more value, but more importantly, and enjoy the process, which is something people leave off. There's a lot of people add value all the time, but they're not happy. I want to be happy while I do it and have more importantly, joy while I do it. And, Doing things like we're doing today give me joy because I can impact so many more people than what you're doing. So I really thank you for allowing me to be with you today. Dave, you said you worked for Tony Robbins. Obviously, you learned, you said you hung out with Tony and you got to know, hang out with people that were around Tony. Obviously, that puts something in you that is thus, because of what happened in that airplane, helped springboard you and launch you in, into this new era of your life. What sorts of things did you take away from those years of working for Tony? How long did you work for him? I was a head of security for five and an assistant head of security for other five. So 10 years, I was either an yeah. assistant or head of security. Okay. And, and what's, what sorts of lessons did you learn that have helped now propel you into, into this or that pr provided the foundation? That's a great question. Number one um, is having faith in other people. You know, I had to work in a team environment with people who were, had means, to say it that way. They were not hurting, but they had other situations. So we're having faith in each other. But really, the one thing he, he taught me, and we talked about this for years, is nothing, nothing is really impossible when you have faith on what you're, in your mission, what's going to happen. And I'll share a little bit what happened and how that came about with Tony and around Tony. Um, so back in 1999, and that's when I was assistant security director for Tony. I was responsible basically for his, his entourage, his guests to make sure they were taken care of in that role. You know? So I was escorting General Norman Schwarzkopf in Hawaii. And you know, it's very honor. I had honor of escorting a four-star general. That's amazing honor, but also daunting, being around someone of that stature, right? I mean, it's like, that's pretty, pretty daunting. But I asked, him, I asked him a question. I said, sir, can I ask you a question? He said, no one ever asked a general a question a second time. I'm like, whoa. Did I offend the general, right? I said, <laughs> I said, I'd like to, can I please ask you this? No one ever asked a second question, ask the question. So I said, sir, can you tell me, how did you end that war so quickly? And he goes, do you really want to know or are you really at, just ask him? And I was like, whoa. Uh, I said, I'd really like to know, sir. He goes, I had to get people focused on the mission. Every day people would come to me with problems. You know, the women couldn't drive tanks in Saudi Arabia because they can't drive. They had to cover their faces. Every day, everybody had to pray a certain way. And my guys would come to I, I, I'm a Christian. I don't pray this way. And he kept reminding people, how does that contribute to the mission of kicking Saddam out of Kuwait? And that really told me a lot about it. I was like, he had one mission, right? And he got yeah. people focused on the mission. Now, going back to Tony, I would have never had that opportunity to learn that lesson if I wasn't around Tony and hanging with people around him. And I got that opportunity to be around all these kind of people and Tony. So Tony told me nothing's impossible. It's all about what you focus on and how you, how you manage your state and, and what your mission is at that moment in time. And he was on me, guys, for 10 years. Go into business for yourself. Don't work for somebody else. Your time, you got to control your time because that's the one thing in life that's equal to everybody is time. And 10 years later, I, when he, after the plane crash, he did a nice testimonial for me. But he also and I were talking. It's like He says, now it's time. you got to go out. God has given you this pathway. Go. And that's why it took me a couple of years to figure it out. But he also reinforced that there's a greater being 
giving me a message saying, okay, if you don't take it now, he may not trust you with it again. He may, God opens pathways for everybody. I think everybody has a pathway, but a lot of people don't choose to take it. I chose to take it. And after the plane crash, some of the other passengers were a little, I don't know, were jealous or just like, why is he doing all this? How can he do all this? And, I, and the one time I finally saw him, I was like, listen, you have the same pathway that I had. You had a plane crash. You survived a plane crash. God opened this up to you. Did you take it? Did you listen to his message? And I said, I don't judge you whether you do or not. I chose to take the message. And now I'm taking it, and I'm taking it now all over the world because I think that's what, that's what God wanted me to do. My minister, who's now a bishop in Florida, um, her, I got the opportunity to honor speak at 9-11 on, um, in 2010 here in Charlotte. I was honored. I mean, it was, blew me away. But I invited my minister to come with me. And he, he heard me speak before, right, in churches, but he never heard me speak in front of like a big group of thousands of people. And he came, we were walking back to the car together. And he goes, this is, you have a speaking ministry. He said, God has set you on a different path. It's not being ordained. It's about taking your ministry and speaking all over the world. And that's, that's what really opened my eyes up that next year. It's like, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the message God was giving me. <clears throat> and it took me this long to figure it out. Because God's delays are not God's denials. I mean, they're not. He gave me 10 years, basically, to figure this thing out. And that day, put me right in my face, okay, are you going to do it? You know, Dave, as we wrap up, and I'm just thinking about the fact that, uh, you know, this door opened and you had the courage to walk through it, where a lot of people didn't. And, you know, that's not uh, just about, you know, the people on that plane. You know, I think that speaks to a lot of us. Myself at many times in my life, Steve, and, you know, a lot of the guests that we've had on this podcast. So as we wrap up, what are some final thoughts you'd really like to leave with people if they've just been listening to this story that, uh, and what has happened to you and what you've done with it? Well, thank you. And I'm, once again, I'm honored. I'm, so many things are happening coming up, and I, I love, I'll share that with you in a second. But I think the big thing is, is like I mentioned, is everybody in life, it doesn't matter whether you're the richest man in the world or you're, the, you're in poverty, everybody has that time of life when there's a crisis. And it may be a major crisis, it may be a minor crisis, whether it's a financial crisis or a family crisis or a health crisis, whatever it may be. But I think God gives you that opportunity and that pathway to reach out to him and say, okay, all right, you know, maybe I have sort of left you for a while and I didn't believe, but, you know, <clears throat> ask for forgiveness and let him bring you to that point that he opens up and said, okay, this is what you have to do. This is whether it's walk humbly with me or you have to take action. You have to do this to you know, open up that pathway. And all of a sudden, some people say, you know what? I can't see, I, I can't see before my eyes. I can't see it, right? And some people, all of a sudden, that light opens up. And it's like, maybe this is what it's all about. And they take it, and all of a sudden, they get redemption. And they get the opportunity to not only you know, survive, but also thrive and share the message with other people. And the people, I think, that don't share the message are the ones who are, are, are defeating themselves. Because God wants you to share that message. Yeah, and he'll put you in venues to be able to do it if you accept that, that he wants you to do it. So I think, number one, when you're given that opportunity, as Schwarzkopf said one time, and I heard him say it in, in, this, in the talk, when given the opportunity to lead, lead. When you're given the opportunity to share the message, share the message, whatever that may be. And all of a sudden, things will be opened up to you. And that's what's happened to me. I mean, my next book's coming out in four or five weeks. And I'm excited to be able to do that. And all of a sudden, I'm involved with three movies about my story. And God's opened up now pathways to take it all over the world in ways that I would never 
ever been able to have that opportunity. What's the book about, Dave? The book's name is Moments Matter. And it's really well, what happened is last year, well, about a year and a half ago now, my assistant Vicky and I were talking. It's like, it's like, you need to get all this out. You need to document everything that happened. So we took nine hours, 10 hours, and went through painstakingly moment by moment what happened. And what we identified is like 12 different resources that I and other people used that day didn't always survive that, but now taken on a whole different level. So it's about those little moments in life, right? When you, and I, t- I share this with youth especially, that um, you know, when your parents tell you to do something or your teacher tells you to do something or instructor says, you know, and you're saying, why am I doing this? I'm never going to use this again. This is a waste of time. Whether it's calculus in high school, you're never going to use that again or something. I say, just think of a one moment, moment in time. When Captain Sullenberger, when he attended the Air Force Academy, if he didn't learn how to glide a plane, me and 154 other people and possibly the George Washington Bridge are not here. Just think, if he didn't learn that one skill, that moment, if I didn't learn how to swim when my parents made me learn how to swim back in the 60s, I may never be here today. So it's all these little moments and these resources that you have. So that's what the book's about. And we're really excited. I'm, um, I'm thoroughly uh, thrilled with how we put this thing together. And we're about five, six weeks away. And then there's three, like I said, three movies that all of a sudden came together within a matter of months where uh, one's being debuted in Philadelphia on July 9th. Um, and it's about my story. And I was interviewed. They took my story. But in January 15th of next year in New York City, the movie Miracles on the Hudson is being debuted. And I'm actually reenacting, and me and about 12 other people reenacting our stories, bringing them together, and showing how God puts people in places. Hmm. And then, as you may have heard last week or two weeks ago, when Clint Eastwood now is doing the movie of Sully, and all of a sudden, our story is going to be out in a whole different level with somebody who knows what they're doing, <laughs> um, and who resp- and more importantly, respects heroes. And that's he knows how to tell a hero's story. And you know, American Sniper is a perfect example of that. Yeah, and with Tom Hanks potentially being Captain Sullenberger in the movie, it's going to be amazing. So three three movies within the next year and a half that uh, either I my story or hopefully some of pieces of my story will be be shared. God works in amazing ways. Well, Dave, thank you so much for coming on today. This was just uh, fantastic. It was a blessing, and I really appreciate who you are and really what you're doing and how you've just walked through that door that God opened for you. Well, same here. Thank you, and uh, God bless you both, too. I think you're doing great work for God right now, sharing not only your message, but also other people's messages so people can hear. It's just not a one-off. Everybody's got their halftime story, their time when they have to make that decision in life to, where do I go now? If you'd like more information about Dave, his speaking, his website, his blog, just go to eternalleadership.com slash 071. That's eternalleadership.com slash 071. And that link is embedded in the summary of this MP3. So if you're listening on your iPhone in the podcast app, just click the little I next to the episode in the episode list or click the logo if you're listening to this episode and you see our beautiful orange logo there on your screen. It's great technology. By the way, Dave is hosting a webinar in a week about faith through and after a crisis. The date is going to be August 20th at noon Eastern. There's a link to sign up in our show notes, eternalleadership.com slash 071 and at daveandersonspeaks.com slash eternal. That's daveandersonspeaks.com slash eternal. If you can, don't miss it. 
We talked about the book Halftime, and if you're listening to this show for any length of time, you know that Eternal Leadership has partnered with the Halftime Institute to get you a free copy of Bob Buford's seminal masterpiece, Halftime. The subtitle is Moving from Success to Significance, and more than three quarters of a million copies have been sold. If you'd like your copy, just go to eternalleadership.com slash halftime. That's eternalleadership.com slash halftime. And the great thing is, after you get the book, if you have any questions, you can get a free one hour of halftime coaching. Halftime has set up a program to help walk you through your halftime journey where you're paired up with a coach. John went through this program and it was instrumental in his desire to start this show. So get the free book and an hour of coaching. Just go to eternalleadership.com slash halftime. Next time on Eternal Leadership, Sandra Crawford Williamson returns to talk about her viral blog post, She's There, Look Closer. There are a lot of professional Christian women out there that are very, very involved in their local church and they don't feel included or utilized or acknowledged in any way for their specific gifts within the church. Some great info for women and men. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. <laughs>